All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray. And then we're going to be in Psalm 115. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can go to Psalm 115, and we're going to dig into this. Um, But let me pray for our our time in God's Word. Let's ask Him for His help. This morning, uh, we need Him uh, to open our eyes to see the wonderful things that He has for us. So uh, let's ask Him for that, and I'll pray. Father, thank you for uh, your great grace to us. And Lord Jesus, we do know that there are people um, in, our, in our church and in our community that are hurting and suffering um, the loss of loved ones and, and um, just the, diff- the different things that are going on in people's lives. Uh, and so we just pray for your comfort this morning. We pray that you would um, extend your, your loving kindness towards us no matter where we are right now. And um, we just pray for your help as we open up the word that you, by your spirit, would open our eyes to see the the beauty of Jesus this morning. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. I don't don't know. I'm guessing most of you, if if you've been a Christian a little while, um, I've been a Christian this year, I think, is my 30th year as a follower of Jesus. Um, and, and so that has been a fairly decent amount of time. Um, I have not been a good follower of Jesus for most of that. Um, most of us haven't been good followers of Jesus. I think we all are, if we're honest, we've struggled, we've sinned, we've, we've dealt with things that are kind of recurring issues in our hearts. Um, and, and yet we know that it's not our goodness, obedience, righteousness, uh, or good works that keeps us in the love of God. It is his love that keeps us in the love of God. Um, and, and so we, we can rest in that. Um, but, but I don't know if you've ever experienced this or not as a follower of Jesus, where you've read the Bible or heard the Bible read, and it just challenges you at the core of who you are. Where, where you feel like your heart is just put into this, this press and it's uncomfortable, uh, but at the end of it, you, you see Jesus in a more profound way or you uh, are confronted by some sin that you are able to confess and repent of. And, um, and, and I think that the, the Bible is an incredible thing that God uses to get us where he wants us to be. And many times in my life, I've read passages that are just that kind of work of God in, in my heart where he'll press in on things and he'll make, uh, just make me uncomfortable in the moment, uh, but in the end uh, really brings out liberty for me. And, and Psalm 115 is one of those that God has used periodically throughout my life um, to help me um, really get my eyes off of myself and place them onto, onto Jesus where they belong. Psalm 115 is, a, is an incredible text. Um, and again, it's just one of those that, uh, not like every day, but every so often, the Lord will bring it back to me. And I am confronted again by what's there. And, and it's, um, it's very good, even if it is painful, because it's, it, what it does is it ultimately turns our eyes to Jesus. It turns our eyes to the hope that we have in the gospel. And so what this psalm is going to do for us today, I think, uh, Lord willing, is it's going to show us 
um, how God, as revealed to us in the person of Jesus, is better than anything else that we can find comfort in. So if he's better than anything else that we are tempted to find comfort in, and we find comfort in him, then, then we're freed in that moment to take our eyes off of ourselves. And I think that that's really the theme of Psalm 115, that, that Jesus is for us what no other thing could be and no other person could be. And that we are just completely dependent on him for the joy and, the, and the, all of the satisfaction that we, that we long for and were made for can be met in him. And so uh, what we talk about a lot here when, when it comes to these kind of issues is we talk about being gospel-centered. That's a phrase we throw out a lot here at Springbrook Church, being gospel-centered. Uh, and we want, we want this church to be gospel-centered. We want your life to be gospel-centered. And, and, and this psalm is, is really profound in how it shows us what that looks like. It shows us how Christ, through the gospel, through the good news of his life, death, and resurrection, uh, gives us all that we could ever need. And so um, gospel centrality or being gospel-centered simply means, uh, if I could define it for you in four words, here's what it means. I'm okay in Jesus. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. It means to recognize that you are okay in Jesus. Now, we could spend four weeks talking about each one of those words and how it relates to the gospel. But that is at the heart of what it means to be centered on the gospel, that because of the finished work of Jesus, you are exactly in the direction that he wants you to be. And you are going to end your story exactly where he wants you to end. And so we have this God who has done all the work, has accomplished everything for us, and so we can rest. We can, we can say, you know what, I'm okay in Jesus. I'm not, I'm not okay outside of him. I'm not okay without him. But in him, it's okay. And, and that doesn't, again, we're not saying that that means we don't, you know, try to confess our sin or repent or change our behavior as the Lord leads us to do that. Of course, that's a part of it. But, at the, but fundamentally, our salvation does not rest in our ability to change who we are. It rests in what he has done. So that's what we're going to see today. I think we're going to see gospel-centered um, theology coming out of this psalm. Uh, and it really does um, show up here as we get through it. So let's, let's start here in verse 1. Um, and, and here's, here's what I kind of want to do. I'm going to do this a little bit differently than I usually do. Normally we just kind of go through kind of verse by verse all the way through. I think for this particular psalm and how it's structured, uh, it's actually going to be helpful for us to get the full picture by looking at the first half of verse 1, because I think that sets up the whole idea. And then going down to verse 4 through 11, kind of the middle section, and then we'll back up and kind of talk about it from there. So that's what we're going to do. Um, but look at verse 1. It says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. The, the first thing out of this psalm is simply this. 
that because of who God is, and we're going to see who God is as we work through this psalm, because of who God is, we are free to take our eyes off of ourselves and say, it's not us that needs the glory. It's not us that needs the praise. It's you. It's you that deserves it. It's you that we want to extend this to. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. And, and here's, here's the whole question that we got to ask ourselves as we work through this psalm. It's this, why in the world would we ever want to do that? Why in the world would we ever want to say to God, don't give me glory, give yourself glory? Why would we ever want that? Because fundamentally, as human beings, we are glory thieves. That's who we are. Fundamentally, at our core, we steal glory. From the very beginning of our, of our journey into rebellion and sin in the Garden of Eden, that has been the desire. Satan puts into the minds of Eve and Adam, who was with her, this little, this little thing that... If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You'll be like God. And, and he, he was really just sowing this seed of, you know what? The glory that God deserves, you could have it. If you do it my way, if you take that fruit and eat it and you don't take God's word. So from, the, from that point forward, we have been glory thieves. We have done everything that we've done, motivated by the desire to get the glory. To get glory. This is what motivated Cain to murder his brother. Because God was not approved, proving of his sacrifice. And he approved of Abel's. And so Cain murders his brother out of hatred for him because he didn't get the glory. We, we see it over and over and over again, this is what's at the root of all of our sin, the desire for glory that God only deserves. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why would we want to give God glory? Well, fundamentally, it's because of who he is. It's because of who he is. And what this psalm does is it shows us who he is, and he also uh, spends a good deal of time in this psalm, which it almost feels like it's a disconnected, like, sort of like, ooh, squirrel kind of moment as you read the psalm. Um, but it's totally related to what he's saying. And he spends, like, most of the text talking about the idols of, fall of the other nations around Israel. And let me just read those verses, because I think what this does is it sets into context the contrast between what the psalm is trying to get at in giving God glory to what the alternative is. So let's look at verse 4. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Notice that phrase, the work of human hands. This is glory-stealing. This is what motivated the people in Genesis to build the Tower of Babel. Remember that story? They were building the Tower of Babel and their, their intention was let's build a tower to reach to heaven. 
They, they pursued this so that people would look at them and go, wow, how impressive you are. Look at that tower that you've built. Look at what you've accomplished with your very own hands. And the text in Genesis tells us that God came down to see the tower, which I just think is a hilarious little thing because they're building this tower to reach the heavens and God still had to come down just to see it because <laughs> it's just pathetic. It's a pathetic attempt to get to him and to be like him. And so here we're seeing this idea of making things with our own hands is a repeated thing throughout the text, throughout the scriptures, where we are trying to accomplish something for ourselves and steal God's glory. And this comes out in idolatry, in creating these idols of silver and gold. There's just the work of human hands. But then look at, again, just like God had to come down to see the Tower of Babel that could supposedly reach the heavens. These idols of human hands, made by human hands, are not what they were meant to be. Look at verse 5. It says, They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not smell. Excuse me, ears don't smell. Hear, I got carried away. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Then notice this, verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So here's what's going on, I think, in this text. It's, it's showing a, a very important truth. And that is that anything that we make to steal God's glory or to find in it some form of comfort or whatever that only God can meet will always leave us worse than when we started. These, these idols that are created by human hands do not have any life in them at all. They, they resemble a living thing. They have noses and eyes and ears and all that, right? But they don't have any life and the warning in this is that those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. In other words, if you are trusting in something that isn't of God and through God, then what's going to happen is that we will just become more and more dead, just like those things that we trust in are dead. That, that, that we have to trust in the Lord because only the Lord is living and active and at work and, and faithful to his people. And so what, what this psalm is doing here is it's showing us the, the futility of false worship, of gods that we try to create for ourselves. And instead, it paints a better picture. It paints a superior picture of God, the God that we can trust in, the God that we can depend on, and what he's like. 
And so we're going to just walk through um, the remaining verses to just look at the contrast that is happening between the true God and the false gods that we hope in. So let's look at verse 1 again. We'll go back there. It's not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The, the reason why we would ever want to give God the glory when our hearts are bent towards taking it for ourselves is because in him is a love that is so much greater and so much more faithful and so much more freeing than any of the false hopes that we place in someone who will love us perfectly. See, if we try to fill the, the, the desire to be loved, and every one of us has the desire to be loved. We were wired that way because God made us to be loved in him. All of us want and desire to be loved. The problem is that we pursue that desire through imperfect places and people. And here's the thing, it, it's God will put people in your life who will love you, but no one will ever love you perfectly. And so if you're just constantly pursuing a love from a human person who, who you think can fill that, what ends up happening? You end up feeling the ultimate dread of indifference or rejection from them. If you're counting on someone other than Jesus to fulfill the desire of your heart to be loved, you will be disappointed. You will be, and you've probably felt that. You've probably experienced that because people will always let you down. But Jesus doesn't leave, let us down, right? His, his love is steadfast and faithful. What are those words pointing us to? steadfast is simply meaning this, that it doesn't move, right? It doesn't change. It doesn't shift. It, it doesn't go with the, with the seasons. It's steadfast. His, his love is also faithful, that he has faithfulness to his people. If you think about um, the, the, the message of the Old Testament, and we read the stories of Israel in the early days uh, coming out of Egypt and their wandering journeys. And, and how many times did they just deserve to be blown off the map, right? Just, they should have been. They were so grumbling. They were grumbling. They were constantly bickering. They were always accusing God of trying to kill them. They, they went around in, in uh, the wilderness and they started to get a little hungry or a little thirsty and they would immediately jump to, God doesn't love us. He brought us out here to kill us. And then they started to revise history in there. And this is what we all do, right? We start to revise history and go, man, it was better back there. It was better in Egypt. We used to sit around these meat pots all day and just eat till we were going to explode. And all of that's fake right? I don't even know what a meat pot is, but they, they used to just dream about these meat pots that they supposedly had 
in Egypt. And the fact is that they were making bricks. They were enslaved. Their, their firstborns were being thrown into the Nile River. This was not a good thing. But they began to doubt the goodness of God in their temporary struggles. And, and what God did for them over and over again was not, okay, I'll send you back. That's what he should have done. I mean, if you think about justice, if you think about just purely like vindictiveness and what we would do, they deserve to be sent back. They deserve to be, to be wiped off the, the planet, to be honest. But God didn't do that. Instead, he would miraculously provide. He brought water from rocks. He provided manna for them to eat. When they got sick of eating the manna, he provided them with birds to eat for, for meat. And, and they, they had all that they needed, and yet they grumbled every step of the way. This is the thing. Um, when, when we see God's faithfulness to them, we can be, it's in there, it's in the Bible, so that we can be assured that his faithfulness to us is the same way. It's not shifting. Even though we deserve for it to leave us, it doesn't. And so we may try to set up these idols of, of love that, that we're going to think, okay, this, this person or this thing or whatever is going to meet my need there. And in the end, what the scriptures are saying is, no, it's in Jesus that love can be experienced and felt and only be perfect for you. So we see a God who loves his people and, and that is far better than anything that we can set up for ourselves. Secondly, let's look at verse 2 and 3. It says, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. So here we see that in, in God, through Jesus, is a sovereign and in control, God. And that sovereign control that God has in his world, that's what it means when it says he, he's in the heavens and does all that he pleases. It's, it's his sovereignty. right? He's doing what he wants to do. He's accomplishing all that he intends to accomplish. He's in control. He is in control, and yet he also loves us. Right? That's why it starts with his faithfulness and his love. And then to his, see, here's the thing. If we had a God who loved us but had no control over the circumstances of the world or our lives, he's basically a golden retriever. Right? That's all he is. Big, fluffy, lovable, you know, runs up to you and says hi, but, but mainly worthless, right? I mean, I'm not trying to offend you if you have dogs, but they're worthless. Um, they are. And so are cats. So I'm not a cat person. Don't write me emails. Um, but they're not going to love you and they're not going to be in control of things. So they, 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 they just can't fulfill that ultimately. Now, if God was a in control sovereign God but didn't love us, none of us would be here right now. We'd all be, we'd all be blown to pieces. So that's terrifying. <laughs> like, we, you think about So we have this, this perfect... Uh, marriage in God's character of both perfect love and sovereign control. And, and that's comforting. That's, 
that, that we find great joy in that. And here's what that does. Here's what this truth about God does for us. It frees us from the false hope of control and power that we try to hang on to. Right? One of the idols that we chase is love. But another idol that we often chase is the idol of control. We want to be in control. We want to ha- call the shots. We want to make every decision. We want to be micromanaging those things. And here's the problem. If we're clinging to that desire to be in control or to have power, all that ultimately flows from that is uncertainty or humiliation. Uh, you, you can live your life trying to be in control of everything, but guess what? You can't be in control of everything. You just can't. No matter how hard you might want it, you can't be in control of the things that happen in life. You cannot control all your circumstances. And so if you are leaning on yourself to meet that need that only God can meet in you for control and authority, what you're going to see happen is you're going to be uncertain. You're going to go through life with just extreme anxiety uncertainty, or God's going to humiliate you. He's going to humiliate you. He's going to do it for your good, by the way. He's going to do it for the good of his name and for the good of his church. And I think, I'm not going to refer to people by name, but we've seen in the last year uh, a number of very high-profile pastors uh, leave the ministry in terrible circumstances. And that is something that we should mourn because the church of, of God is, is hurt in those things. People are hurt in that process. But it's also something that we can be grateful that God does because he humiliates those who depend on themselves and not on him. And he will bring good out of it. That's part of the sovereign control that we that we trust in as, as a savior. That he's a God who is in control, but is actually working all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so in him, we see sovereign control. We see love. And, and these things can break down our idols that we're clinging to. Let's look at the next one here in Verse 12 and 13 says, The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Now here's what this is getting at. We're getting, we're seeing that In Christ, love is fully experienced. In Christ, control and authority is fully experienced as it should be in the best possible way. But in him, there's also another idol that is is fulfilled that doesn't have to be met outside of him, and that is the idol of approval. How many of us live our lives wanting the approval of people? Everyone. Everyone. I do. You do. 
We all want people to like us, to accept us, to approve of us, to to let us in, right? And all of us have a little bit of some PTSD from middle school, right? Where we knew that we weren't loved by everybody. That's the first time it like kind of opened our eyes to it. Like elementary school, for the most part, everyone's kind of chummy. And then you get to the the shark tank of middle school. And then it's like, oh no, people hate me. I don't know why they hate me, but they hate me. I, and I, I mean, you know, you still have that moment where you walk into a room and you're kind of going, feels like middle school again, that first, you know? Because we want to be approved. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. And what this, this passage here tells us is that the Lord has remembered you and he will bless you. He, he is not holding back on his approval and here, here's the thing. Now, he doesn't approve of you just because of you. He approves of you because of Jesus. Because Jesus lived the perfect life and died in your place and rose again. He did that, and he did that for you. He lived the life that you were supposed to live. He lived the life I was supposed to live. And because he's done that, here's a super important thing to hear. Because of Jesus, there's no one left to impress. And there's no one left, nothing left rather, to prove. There's nothing to prove. No one to impress. Jesus approves of us because he stood in our place and he bore the wrath we deserved. We can lean into this and go, you know what? I don't need to be approved by every person in the world. I don't need to be liked by everyone. And we all know how insane that is, how crazy of a pursuit it is to try to be loved by everyone. Paul felt it. In, in, in Galatians, he writes about how if he was trying to impress people or, or, or be approved by people, he wouldn't be a servant of Christ anymore. He's, he's Christ's servant and he's going to say what Jesus wants him to say even if that means he's hated by others. And, and we have to get that into our hearts too that yeah, there's, there's a real drive, there's a real temptation in us for approval. But if we're trying to find that approval in other people, we will always be left, left um, worse off and left wondering and and. and we're trying to just live our lives going, man, I don't know why they don't like me. What can, you're, you don't need to be liked by everyone because the only one who really matters likes you. He approves of you. He's not mad at you. He has is, he is remembered you. He is blessing you. And it's repeated here. He's blessing the house of Israel. He's blessing the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great universally the Lord blesses those who fear him. You don't have to be a big shot for God to be impressed by you. He says the small are blessed by the Lord. The great are as well if they love him. But most of us would probably put ourselves in the category of the small. We're, We're not impressive. Most of us don't have a lot of pedigree. Most of us don't have a lot of like, you know, really impressive things to point people to. And and that's what gives us so much anxiety if our idol is the approval of people. 
if we're pursuing the idolatry of approval of man, then we're always going to feel like we don't measure up. But when we see the gospel and what it means to be gospel-centered is to know I'm okay in Jesus because of all that he's done for us. And so I can find my approval in him. So there's nothing left for me to prove. And there's no one left for me to impress. There's a real, there's a real temptation to, to do those things. So we need to remind ourselves of this, that God will bless us. He will bless those who fear him, both the small and the great. Look at one more thing here. Verse 14 and 15, it says, May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. I think this tackles another major heart idol that we all experience, and that is um, the idol of, of provision. We want, we want things. And a lot of that is good, right? We want to be, be able to feed our family. We want to be able to house our family. We want to be able to make it through, right? And most of us, it starts in a good place, but then it can take on a whole new life where we begin to doubt and fear whether or not God is actually going to provide. And so because in Jesus we have all the provision that we could ever need, we don't need to pursue the idols that we chase after because we know that Jesus will care for us. And that's really the point that Jesus tries to make in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. He, he talks about anxiety. He speaks specifically to the issue of, is God going to feed us? Is God going to clothe us? Is God going to provide what we need in this? And, and Jesus' answer is, yes, he will. And he points to the created world and he says, look at the birds. The birds don't like freak out because they know God's going to provide for them. By their very nature, they know that. And so they just, they just plug away. They do, what, they do what they're made to do. And yet we have this real fear in us that God's not going to care for us. And Jesus' encouragement is you matter more than the birds. You matter more. If he takes care of them, he's going to take care of you. Now, listen, we need to hear this because we can very easily twist this into, well, that means that God's just going to give me everything I want. No. God will not give us everything we want. And here's why. I mean, just fundamentally, here's why. Because if we had everything we ever wanted, we would not think we need him. God's not, God loves us too much to do that to us. He loves us too much to give us everything we need or everything we want, excuse me. But he will give us what we need for the days that we're numbered. And everybody's days are numbered. The Lord knows how many days you have on earth. You don't. And that's a good thing too, by the way. That's grace. Because if, if you were like, you know, tattooed with an expiration date on your, on your butt or something when you were born, man, you'd be looking in that mirror going, oh man, I got a... 60 more years, I mean, it's counting down, right? You, we would just be freaking out. God gives us a grace to not tell us when, when we're done. 
But until the day he's done with us on this earth and transitions us into glory, he will provide for every need we have. He will give us all the food we need, all the water we need, all the shelter we need, all the clothing we need in to keep us going for the days we're numbered. And th- this, is the, this is what Jesus is, is, is showing us, I think. Um, it, this, this passage is really hitting at, and man, this was written thousands of years ago, but how timely is it now? Nothing changes in, human, in, in the human condition. We are all always searching for the same things. We're all desiring to be loved. Well, in Jesus, you have the fullness of love. We're all desiring for for control. Well, in Jesus, there's control and there's power motivated by his love for you. We all want to be approved. Well, in Jesus, you are approved of. You are cared for. You are remembered. And, And we all want to be provided for. And in Jesus, there's the provision we would ever need. This, this just starts to peel away at all of those really fundamental fears that every one of us has. And it's sandwiched, these things are sandwiched uh, on, on either side of this whole long thing about these idols that we make. And how these idols, they may look like something alive, but they don't have life in them. And the point of that is that trusting in self-made idols is foolish at best and horribly reckless at worst. And, and so here, here's the thing. I, I, I realize that the temptation as we read these things is to read it and to go, well, this doesn't apply to me because I don't have a statue in my house that I pray to. I, I don't have an idol made of silver or gold in my house. But what I've been trying to get at this this morning is that you may not have those idols, but we all have idols. And those idols are the things that we trust in and we lean on for the hope that our hearts are crying out for. But the point of the psalm is that if we find, if we try to meet those needs in idols, in false gods, in false hopes, then we will always be left worse than when we started. And so if, if your idol is the idol of approval from people, then, then where that leads to is rejection. If your idol is that of control, then it leads to humiliation or anxiety. If your idol is comfort, it's going to lead to suffering. See, because Jesus made it so that we would find all of these things in him and not in the false gods that we prop up. Um, there, there was a, a man who lived in the 300s. He was a, a bishop in the, in the church. Um, his name was uh, St. Augustine or Augustine. Some, we pronounce it differently depending on who you talk to. Uh, but St. Augustine wrote in a, in a book, his biography. It's a, it's a classic. Um, it's worth reading. If you can get a modern English translation of it, it's worth reading for sure. It's, it's called The Confessions of St. Augustine. And in it, he has one little line that is just incredibly poignant for, for all of us. 
And here's what he says as he's talking about his journey to faith because he didn't become a believer until he was a, an adult. And he says this, he said, my heart was restless until it found its rest in you. And that's all of us. Our hearts are restless. They're constantly chasing after that which we think will satisfy. And guess what? There is no rest until we rest in him. And that's what it means fundamentally to be gospel-centered in your life. It means to be able to finally rest. It means to actually be able to take the words of Jesus on the cross where he said, it is finished, seriously. It is finished doesn't mean I've done my part, now you do yours. It means he's done it all. He's accomplished everything. So guess what? You're okay in Jesus. That's what it means. Doesn't mean you don't have things to work on. Doesn't mean you don't have sins that need to be ironed out. But guess what? God's got that too. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. He's working in you, and yes, he, he does that through convicting us and pressing in on us and challenging us and, and, and working in our hearts so that we actually want to be like him. And it doesn't, but it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen immediately. It's a lifelong journey that begins from the moment we trust in Jesus to the moment that we meet him in glory. And, and everything in between, it's still his work. It's, and ultimately the work, we know what it gets to at the end, but it's the process in between that makes us so concerned. So let's continue to trust. And as we continue to trust in the very character and heart of God, as a God who is faithful and steadfast in his love, a God who is in control, a God who will remember and approve of us, the God who will provide for us, then we can lean into him through Jesus. It, as that's all revealed in the person of Jesus, we can lean in and trust in him and find what our hearts are desperately searching for. And so we see in this text a, a really important reminder that's highlighted in the very first line. It's not about us. Not to us, O oh Lord. Not to us, but to your name. Give glory. We can give God glory and we will want to give God glory as we see him for all that he is for us in Jesus. And so it's to that end that we should worship and that end that we should live. Let me pray for us and then we'll transition into some worship. Father God, we thank you for Jesus who is for us all that we could ever need or ever want. Would you, Jesus, work in our hearts this morning? Would you fill us? Would you encourage us? Would you convict us? We pray that you would continue to move even now in the songs we sing and in the participation that we, we have in, in the table of communion. And we ask that you would um, do your work, O oh God, 
It's, it's to you that belongs glory and honor and, and, and it's only to you. And so we pray that that would be in our hearts and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.